Welcome to Give and Take. It's the podcast where yours truly, Scott Jones, talks with authors, artists, activists, theologians, philosophers, political pundits, scholars, philosophers, and a host of others about their work and the lens through which they experience life. I engage my guests in a free-flowing conversation that's entertaining, unexpected, occasionally bizarre, and hopefully enlightening above all. Thanks for listening to this episode of Give and Take. My guest is David Shields. His newest book is Nobody Hates Trump More Than Trump, An Intervention. Nobody Hates Trump More Than Trump is perhaps the only genuinely original thing you've yet read about Donald Trump. It can be read in a variety of ways, as a psychological investigation of Trump himself, as a philosophical meditation on the relationship between language and power, as a satirical compilation of the collected wit and wisdom of Donald Trump, and above all, as a dagger into the rhetoric of American political discourse, a dissection of the politeies that gave rise to and sustains Trump. The book's central thesis is that we have met the enemy, and he is us. It's a really interesting and provocative book, and we had a great conversation about it. I give you David Shields. David, welcome to the podcast. Thanks a lot, Scott. No, Thanks for having me. Oh, it's a, it's a, it's my pleasure. Nobody hates Trump more than Trump is your most recent book. Subtitle is an intervention, and the I, my sense is that that the intervention it, it, it's easy to say, hey, let's uh, you know, I mean, Trump, I think some real estate friends wanted to have an intervention for him, which of course he was not very receptive to, shockingly. But my sense is you're saying that the intervention we might need is is for us as as the electorate, as the culture that that Trump seems to say a lot about us, not just about himself. Yeah, I mean, I think, yeah, I think that's right. That um, I think of it. I think of the subtitle as having a few meanings, not to get too literary on you or anything, but basically I think it means, you know, yes, it's an intervention. I think, you know, friends of mine, I'm not in AA, but friends in AA say they think of Trump as a sort of dry drunk that, you know, his brother died of alcohol related issues and Trump has never had a drink in his entire life. And there's, you know, this friend of mine has a very strong reading of Trump as a, a dry drunk that, he, you know, he'd be a little calmer maybe if he drank a bit. But um, so, you know, I, so the first meaning of it for me is that it, it sort of puns on the idea of an intervention, you know, that, you know, I think when you think of an intervention, you know, you, you think of, you know, someone who's taking too many drugs or too much alcohol. And so I'm sort of making a joke about that, you know, that we need an, an intervention with Trump. So then I also think, as you say, Scott, the intervention is meant to be, can we please talk about Trump in a different way that I feel like, I don't know if my book is that much different from every from everyone else's book. I'd like to think it is. But basically, the intervention is, as you say, Trump is messed up, but so are we. And if we just continue the conversation being, you know, people on the right, I guess, either think or pretend to think Trump is really great. And then people on the left say Trump is the worst thing to ever happen. And to me, I agree. The, the intervention, the part that interests me a lot is, you know, I'm basically on the left with some skepticism towards certain leftist virtue signaling. Can we please change the conversation? Because this is not working. This is really not not working the way every time Trump belches the left and the right react in these unbelievably predictable ways. And my book is an attempt to, I hope, subtly change the conversation. I, I was listening to a podcast recently called Why Theory. And I mean, you mentioned Lacan in your book a little bit. And these guys are influenced by the psychoanalytic theory, theorists Lacan and Hegel and some other thinkers. But they try to translate this stuff into everyday cultural concerns. And they had a great episode on the the politics of desire and they're using desire in the psychoanalytic sense not just pleasure but the guilty pleasure the the, the thing that needs to remind you of finitude and transgress you know and it, it, that's why it's you know we often think of these guilty pleasures or thrill seeking or something and they were saying that trump is the ultimate form of desire for many people that you 
that you know you you go you know these people at the rallies aren't stupid when he says the wall is almost built and they cheer they know the wall is is not built but then it, it adds to the desire right this that the, the, the you know the, the the transgression of of accepting the falsehood of the one you're following and it's just all this kind of psychoanalytic power of, of where they were saying you know you can't desire Hillary Clinton right it's like eating it's exactly eating, it's eating your vegetables right there's nothing exactly sexy about it there's nothing through it so that this and they were just saying that this is sort of why th- th- this dimension is what people miss about about trump that 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 you know like finitude the complexities of life you know these deep psychological drives that move us there's something that that, that has some explanatory power revelatory power that a lot especially on the left this gets ignored right and it, 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 it just totally facts are shouted and facts are shouted you know i saying no this isn't about those sorts of things well, sounds like i mean i'm gonna to cancel our podcast and go listen to that podcast. I mean, that sounds so good. I've got to go listen to that that white the the Y theory thing. And as a general podcast, that sounds good. But that episode, I don't know if, if you're saying Scott, they had a whole episode. Yeah, on, yeah, whole whole episode. It was amazing. Was it on Trump per se? It, yeah, it was on politics in general. But then Trump was sort of the 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 sort of cent, center focus, and there. It's interesting because they were saying that you know part of the problem now is like that you know you start with like Nietzsche. That where power is sort of suppressed behind morality, and and they thought that's kind of they're Nietzsche fans, but they think that's adolescent because you can have power really ex- more explicit than that. And they talk about Foucault, of course, the French postmodern thinker, how he moralizes power as the sort of you know somebody that's doing intellectual history, and the left has sort of stayed with that. But they said you know the the problem with that is that. Everyone has to use power. So when the left uses power, it looks hypocritical because they're always demonizing power. But the left is stuck in the kind of, they think this Foucault movement, and they don't understand sort of the, some of the deep psychoanalytic work that's going on with thinkers like you quote, like Zizek and Lacan. So the right understands it in practice. They don't read the books, but they just understand it in theory, in practice, not in theory. That is so... I. God, you've—I mean, basically, you and they have totally stolen the thunder of my book. I mean, I—I I don't know if you've had a chance to read my entire book, but I hope you can see how my book is about—you know—you know, basically, you and they have summarized my whole book awfully well. I mean, I—I I really argue that essentially, I don't know if you—if you are familiar with this term, um, uh, God, I'm forgetting. Uh, uh kayfabe is, is that a term that? That you know, K A Y F A B E. It's a term that um, that carnies use at carnivals. Basically, it's sort of pig Latin for basically fabulous. Okay, and basically, what kayfabe means is what some of the fancy thinkers you've been mentioning mean, which is that at carnivals, the carnies think that. The people who go to carnivals know that the games are totally rigged, and they know that if they throw a little ring or a little uh, ring toward a disc, it's not going to land. But it's fun to be part of this fiction together. It's fun to enter a fictional space of the carnival. It doesn't matter if the basketball that you shoot goes in the basket. It almost certainly is not going to go into the basket at the, uh, the carnival. But there's kind of a mutual agreement to enter a fictional space or what's called now, you know, I think it's a really useful term, fan fiction. I think that Trump, I mean, to me, it's the sort of $64 trillion question, you know, to what degree is Trump aware of this? Like, to what degree? I I think, he, you know, I I call him hyper performative. I think he's fully aware of how much he's fulfilling all of these desires that, that you've talked about. I mean, I don't know if you happened to watch his speech at the UN last night, Scott, or if it wasn't last uh, night. I, I did, yeah. And you know, the best thing on Morning Joe this morning, John Podhorowitz, the editor of Commentary Magazine, said that. I mean, I just don't understand why he doesn't do this every week. And I mean, not for the good of the republic. I just mean for his own pleasure, because most presidents in that context look like they're, you know, undergoing root canal. He and you know the whole. He thought he was Springsteen. He even said Elton, you know, that this is the thing. Should I do one more? But at uh, the encore, I mean, I've seen Elton John, and the problem is, if you do the encore and you don't pull it off, they say the concert's not. And he's saying all this as if he's given this performative virtuoso, you know, a press conference, and he just thinks everyone's with him. <laughs> 
And that, I mean, the moment that was so interesting was at the UN when he, I mean, the press conference was amazing, but also the, the speech he gave to the UN when he, uh, he basically said, I, mean, I thought it was an interesting moment, a classic breaking of the fourth wall, where he said, you know, he goes, I, that my administration has accomplished more than virtually every other administration in two years than any other administration has in the history of the American Republic. And, you know, as you probably saw, all of the diplomats laughed at him. And Trump totally broke character. And he said he just started laughing, almost in acknowledgement that he knew how fictional a claim that that was. And that was, to me, a rather pure tell that Trump does know that it's a pure fiction, that he knows that he's lying through his teeth every second of every day. And I think that what you said earlier is really crucial, you know, paraphrasing the why theory people, which is that, you know, I mean, that's the core of my of I think it's a core of of, of my book that people love to flirt with transcendence affinitude that basically, you know, the fact that we die is the central fact of human consciousness. And we all contrive different ways to transcend it. Some people believe in religion or they have a family, they create works of art, um, they build a cathedral, they become heroin addicts. You know, there's a, a million different ways to deal with the fact that we have finite and ultimately insignificant lives. And I think Trump provides huge symbolic revenge for people who are dispossessed or disenfranchised or left behind by the digital economy or feel threatened by, you know, people of color, by uh, Obama's presidency or people for whom there is no more strip mining, you know, for coal or whatever the thing is. Yeah, yeah. In the book, you said, right, I think something like Obama gave those people hope. Trump gave him fear. Hillary Clinton didn't really give him anything. Right. <laughs> I mean, I think it's a, I mean, what would she, you know, she, you could hardly imagine a more perfect foil for Trump than Hillary that, you know, she's basically, I don't know if you've watched those old Marx Brothers movies, was her name Margaret Dumont? I think that she always played the straight woman who the Marx Brothers would, would mock, you know, basically in many ways, Trump is the three stooges taking out, you know, a little baton and whacking everyone over the head, you know, and it's funny, you know, it's, it gives symbolic revenge. And as I say in the book, you know, the crucial five, the crucial people are the 5 million people who voted for Obama and who voted for Trump. I mean, that's an amazing statistic. And, you know, in a way there might be, what would you say it's, maybe 20% of people who, I don't know if it's as high as 25, something like that, people on the hard right who don't care what Trump does as long as he clears tax reform for them, or maybe they get in a Supreme Court justice who's going to overturn Roe Ro v. Wade. I, I don't know how big a percentage that is, let's say 20 or 25%, but there's that crucial 10 or 20 percent who just love the WWE. I mean, that, you know, that you mentioned earlier, Howard Stern and 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 Terry Gross, you know, you've, the li left you've listened to a lot of Stern, by the way, because you're I'm a huge Stern fan. And your book is littered with these Stern conversations that are so revelatory. I mean, they're unbelievable. I mean, they, they are. I mean, Rachel Maddow and Howard Stern said, you know, that he often like he, he often prides himself on not preparing going off the cuff but he's like when he sat with you it's like he really was thinking about his autobiography his legacy he loved he loved fashioning himself for stern right and and and, and stern thought he was a great kind of absurd but great guest <laughs> i think i think that's a wonderful word of fashioning i think it's crucial i mean i went back of course and listened to every single episode on which uh Trump appeared on Stern. And I think your your word is a superb word, fashioning. I do think I do think Jews are really important to Trump. That Roy Cohn, Howard Stern, Jared Kushner. I mean, there's a weird sort of philo anti-Semitism in Trump. I think he basically hugely loves Jewish chutzpah. That um I think Howard Stern in many ways made 
Trump. Of course, The Apprentice did, a million other things did, Mark Barnett and um, what's his name, Tony Schwartz. But I, I think that your word fashioning was, I think, the word that you use. You know, I think that's a beautiful word for him, that he wanted, he did not want to appear to be boring on Howard Stern. And he fashioned this transgressive persona that is partly him, but partly isn't him. I mean, it's really a fictional creation, a la WWE, or, you know, it's really this where he'll say anything about, you know, triangles or anal sex or desiring his daughter. You know, Stern keeps pushing and pushing and pushing Trump. And Trump knows that the boring response is the Hillary-esque response in which you tut-tut about morality. And he wants, I mean, it's really a bromance, isn't it? It's really this man crush between Trump and Stern where on Trump, I think I have it in the book. I forget if it made the final cut that on Trump's wedding night, I mean, this is kind of an amazing thing. On Trump's wedding night to his second wife, Marla Maples, they're watching Stern or they're watching coverage of the of the wedding. And they quote Stern saying this or they hear Stern saying this marriage won't last six weeks. And the the lady Marla Maple starts crying and the marriage is virtually over. I mean, uh, I mean that's kind of an amazing moment. But anyway, what strikes you as revelatory, Scott, about those episodes in the book? Well, I, I mean, okay. I mean, what do you learn from those episodes? I, a couple of things. So, first off, let me just say this something about the structure of your book, right? Because I think I I don't know if you know the Barnes Museum in Philadelphia. It's a, sure. I'm a huge fan. Right. And Barnes, right. Albert Barnes, he had the structure. He thought you, you, you have to look at art this way. And it, he had it arranged in his house in certain ways so that as you went through, you, you, he thought you would learn some things about art. And, you know, what? When I went through it, I, at first you're like, oh my gosh, this is, seems pretentious almost. And then you're like, wait, this is every museum. It's just he's being up front as the curator and telling you how he's curating. And I felt like as I read the book, I'm thinking, all right, this is kind of interesting because you have like six sections and they're, they're about media and, and, and conflict, you know, and, and, and these, you know, this, the rage that, you know, is within in him and within us and and you fluctuate in the book between quotations of trump commentary and just confession from yourself and so i as i'm reading it i was thinking about how i thought when i saw oliver stone's felt when i saw oliver stone's w like i came in sort of you know i wasn't a bush fan i was you know the anti-war protests and stuff and and as i'm watching it i i i see the humanity of this guy who's got daddy issues and 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 happen to have the resources to become president and maybe that made them worse you know and and, and there's a humanity to him that contextualizes the politics and everything everything else you know and, and this i i feel like often people and this is part of maybe the left desire psychoanalytically like we know we shouldn't be judgmental right but we love judging trump and people who like trump and everything and the judgment very this sort of judgmental tone leads to very little insight right because you just get your moral cackles up and stuff so i feel like you invite the reader to on the psychological odyssey right that that we're all the, you know thomas merton says you know there's a difference between seeing yourself and being yourself right and, and this this stern episodes where trump is seeing himself but that's rooted in who he is you know there's there's and, and so i feel like those stern interviews you're trying to sort of bring that out in the whole book like there's this we're like we're all sort of shadow selves and more authentic selves and and, and trump offers in some sense a mirror that if we would do some reflective work that we'd be might be better equipped to handle the phenomena like in therapy when something becomes goes from an amorphous cloud into oh this is what the anxiety and pain is about that's that's really lovely i mean when merton says there's a difference between seeing yourself and being yourself can you unpack that a little how do you mean scott exactly like i sh i should know what that means but what would be an example of seeing yourself and what would be an example of being yourself i suppose it's is it the difference between say under excuse me like understanding that you have some anger at your father and then vibrating with anger and like really just being like 
what does Merton actually yeah, mean he, there? I think he's thinking of like these moments when you're almost like you know in in, in childhood, right? You just you're not you're not projecting much. You just are who you are, right? They say you know if a seven year old or seventy seven right. tells you're unattractive, you're probably unattractive, right? Because a seven year old's not good enough. <laughs> That's a great line. Yet, and seventy seven years are too old to bullshit, right? But in between, you're a pretty good bullshitter. And when you're That's see- fantastic. when you're seeing yourself, you have this constructed self that you're aware that right. other people are seeing. You know the audience self, the sort of you know the self that's projected and, and yet they're never totally unrelated but one right. is definitely and and you know that you i think you're right about the stern thing it's not that that's not who trump is and yet it's much more it's 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 this weird thing it's it, it's at who he is and yet it's constructed and and, and you know there's a psychodrama that produces all this <laughs> and, and totally and i feel like you're trying to like a documentarian to get a handle Thank you. on this no i'm i'm very influenced by documentary film i'm i'm i've uh I've created. I've just have created a documentary film about Marshawn Lynch, and I'm working on some other documentaries. And I'm hugely influenced by documentary f- filmmakers, from you know Adam Curtis to to, to Frederick Weisman to uh, Errol Morris to Ross McAwee. But um, I wanted to circle back to an earlier point you made about sort of Trump being human. You know, every as they say, everyone's human. You know, even Hitler say loved animals and he loved you know he wanted to become a visual artist and he had um you know apparently a a micro penis and an undescended testicle and you know he was one messed up dude and you know like that you know to understand all is not to pardon all but you know it's so easy just to say you know trump's a monster and to pretend that we ourselves are not monsters ourselves in different ways and you know that's sort of the core of the book is is for me you know as you say it has six chapters it starts with childhood then it goes to um kind of trump and sex then trump and media and then it goes into as you say kind of rage and then it really builds toward how much human beings want to learn apocalypse you know Everything, as we say, that whatever Hillary is, that she's not the apocalypse. She's just sort of bureaucracy, you know, as is. And then at the end, I argue the one redeeming thing about Trump is he's probably more self-destructive than destructive. He's not going to blow up the world, I don't think. He's probably going to blow himself up first. But, you know, I do. I mean, a, a friend of mine read the book and said, you know, You've done the impossible. You've made Trump human, you know, which I, you know, she was sort of kidding, but she was sort of serious. And that I think, you know, that's not to say that I don't oppose Trump in various, very direct ways in my political life, but that the book is a kind of weird attempt to try to understand his human the roots of stuff that drive him. And then the more interesting part to me is also why that has huge appeal. You know, yes, people on the right dig him for his anger and rage and symbolic violence and vengeance. But why is the right so wired into him? I mean, I mean, why is the left so wired into him? I mean, I watch MSNBC as much as the next lefty, but it's it's you know MSNBC mocks Fox Fox News as Trump TV, but just as fully MSNBC is is Trump TV as well. You have this great Trump section is- in the book where you talk about Rachel Maddow and you talk about Indra, and I love this too, where she's. You know, she does this a couple of weeks ago. She did this whole thing about the Americans and how that was based on this FBI agent who took down this Russian, really this Im- this embedded Russian and how ma- and years and years and how amazing it was. And, and I'm like, this is just real life, you know, spy shit. This is amazing. And that was Peter Strzok. And, da, 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 and you know, and and you, you, you talk about how this indirection is is. So related to Trump's, I'm always on message by being off message, kind of, and and that this kind of, it, it's just as script. And that, in many ways, Howard Stern asked her Rachel Maddow that question: How much of this are you reading? She's like, Well, I'm memorizing all day, but it is theater, right? Totally. So, I mean, she's you know she's a really gifted performer, and she is reading the stuff. And I don't. There was a. I mean, I'm a huge Maddow fan, obviously, but I'm also you know she's. 
you know, and she has, as she says, she had a friendship with Roger Ailes. You know, Ailes at one point, I think I have it in the book, you know, Ailes offered to buy her out and, you know, pay her substantial amount of money to uh, pretend to be on Fox News, but she'd never be on TV. And he'd pay her, say, I don't know what, a couple million dollars a, a year to just to, yeah. to not compete because she's so freaking good. She's so good. I mean, she I think it. The difference between her and her fellow MSNBC hosts is really striking because she's funny and she's mean, she's nasty, and she's genuinely smart in ways that a lot of people on TV aren't. I mean, she's a, you know, a really smart human being and she's performative that she knows every second that she's on TV, she's performing. She's performing Rachel Maddow. And she gets Trump and in the way that, let's say, I don't know, some of the other people on MSNBC, you know, are full of sturm und drang and easy rage. And all they do is repeat the cycle. Like, I, I haven't watched yet this morning um, Christine Blase Ford yet. Did it happen? I, I haven't. It's on the air right now. Right. I don't know if you have it. I'm really eager to watch it. But, you know, it's, you know, it's theater in a way like it, you know, every, you know, like that's sort of what in a way the book is about is like every single thing about politics is theater. And Trump in many ways is a, you know, I would say a genius performer. You know, he's a great actor. And, you know, it is stern derived, as you say. I want to take a brief moment to ask you a quick question. Do you like this podcast? Do you enjoy it? Do you look forward to listening to it while you do a morning, afternoon, or evening routine, or while you're exercising, or while you're caught frustrated in traffic? Do you tune into it because of the conversations you find here? If the answer to the aforementioned questions is yes, or even just a solid maybe, would you do something for me? Would you consider becoming a Patreon sponsor of the podcast for just five bucks a month or more? It's for a good cause. You can help this podcast and one of the many others I do keep going. And you can help launch several other podcasts projects i've got in the works so i invite you to be a patron through patreon of this which i think is an art form you're enjoying and will continue to enjoy again any contribution is welcome but for five bucks a month you will get a shout out on the thank you roll call which begins right now thank you david babico ellis brazil david zoll sari graham peter steigerwald samantha blythe David Norling, Charlotte Donlin, Barry Stewart, Larry Rule, Stephen Lipless, John Schneider, Ben Crosby, Liam O'Brien, Jim Crest, Stephen Rowe, Ben DeHart, Jordan Morseberger, Josh Redder, Jennifer Underwood, Kai Wittenig, Simone Garabedian, Samantha Konauer, and Jim Kirk. If you want to join these patrons through Patreon, just go to patreon.com forward slash Scott Kent Jones. Thanks again for listening. And now back to the show. You have this great quote from Zizek, the great contemporary philosopher who says that the ongoing rise of populism is grounded for many ordinary people in the experience don't believe in what the government or public media are telling you. It's a general mistrust. And you say more and more, in our public debate, we have this multicultural, multi-truth approach. The idea is that it's oppressive even to mention that sometimes there is one truth. Every subject, especially if a victim has the right to say its own truth, and we have no right to disqualify it. And you talk about, he talks about identity politics. And this is the irony, right? That, that right now you have the left that's saying facts, facts, old school enlightenment, truth. When it used to be the right would say the left is multicultural, pluralistic, you know, like it's it's all relative. Now you've got the right taking on the kind of multi-perspectivalism and saying, oh, there are alternative facts. And, you know, there are, many, there are all these sides to it. And the left is saying, it sounds like the old right. No, no, old school facts. And the, the, it's almost like nobody sees some of this interplay that's going on. Yeah, I mean, I'm hoping I'm I'm hoping I'm the person pointing that out. You, you know, that's in a way the. I think at one point I say, you know, the left has become the party of piety that, you know, it's it's this very weird thing in which, as you say, they've totally switched, switched sides. And I'm I'm actually shooting a documentary film in Phoenix in 
in November where I, a bunch of friends and colleagues that, that were attending this academic literary conference called Nonfiction Now, where a bunch of people who are writers of nonfiction and and professors of, of nonfiction all meet every couple of years at various cities across the world. And we have this conference and convention on issues in nonfiction. And I'm going to try and do a, a three-day kind of film about asking people about, you know, what they think is truth, because in a way, exactly as you say, and as Zizek says, that ever since, you know, I was trying to think of where to actually date it, you know, in a way you could date it to Melville and Moby Dick in the mid-19s, that book, you know, is about how there is no God any anymore. The whiteness of the whale is the abyss of a godless universe. And, and then certainly Dostoevsky and Nietzsche and then coming up through the early 20th century with, uh, you know, Wittgenstein and Saussure and then, you know, um, quantum physics and post-structuralism, semiotics, postmodernism. You know, we could do a whole thing. But basically, when, say, Giuliani says recently, you know, maybe a month ago, truth isn't truth, you know, he was roundly mocked. But of course, that's been the marching orders of the academic left, including myself, for the last easily hundred years. And so, as you say, they've totally switched positions. It's not clear to me if people like, say, Steve Bannon have read a little academic theory. I mean, how does Giuliani know to say truth isn't truth? Or how does how does Trump know to say in that amazing interview with Bill O'Reilly, how does Trump know to say when, I mean, it was a brilliant, brilliant move by Trump, I thought. when yeah, yeah, Putin's a killer, right? <laughs> yeah, Putin's a killer. And then Trump has, I think, a brilliant response derived tellingly from Godfather One. Trump says, uh, oh, Putin's a killer. We're so innocent. I forgot how Trump says it, but it's really good. He basically says we have lots. So of we killers. have plenty of killers too. Yeah, there's lots of killers. There's killers everywhere. We're so innocent. And again, I, 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 I juxtapose it to a passage between Michael and Kay from Godfather, and it's a virtual, it's a virtual match to that that moment. He's constantly pulling. From uh, TV uh, and film. I just rewatched the Godfather. That's right, where Kay says, he, he, Michael's basically, my father, your father's a killer. Senators, heads of Don't they kill. All, they, they kill, you know, they, it's different. You know, it's a different kind of thing. Exactly. And then Kay says, Michael, don't be so naive. And she, and then, then Michael says, Kay, who's being naive now? I mean, it's virtually what Trump is saying. I mean, or there's performative genius, I would argue, in saying, Again, does Trump just come up with it on the spot? Does he plan it? Does somebody write it for him? You know, I prefer my heroes not to be captured. You know, the whole McCain line. I mean, it's an amazing line. I mean, it's a very funny and very nasty line. And it carries resonance that you go after the you go, you know, it's this whole thing that goes back very deep in Republican political thing. You know, you go after Kerry, say, by even denying that Kerry was a war hero, that you go after the very top of the thing and then everything else falls. So if you go after McCain being a war hero, then the statue no longer exists. So anyway, the whole truth isn't truth. And I'm not sure how that's happened. Like, can you trace, Scott, like when did the left, I don't know if it's a Trumpian thing, like if you go back to say Romney and McCain, like how did the left, become like how did the right become is it only trump because certainly that not that wouldn't be mike pence's stance how did it happen that trump became this sort of zizek pupil without ha without being able to spell or know who zizek is yeah and you know, the other thing that's interesting to me that that we're again i, I don't know that anybody a flip-flop related is like you you have this great quote from Chesterton, right, where I think it was the London Times had an essay contest, What's Wrong with the World? Chesterton writes in two words, I am, G.K. Chesterton, right? This Now, most of the other history, conservatives would have held that up, right? That that enlightenment, liberal optimism, past, all this, this educatability of the human race. No, no, we're all, you know, original sin, we're flawed. 
Exactly. And, and, and the left would say, no. Now you have the left sort of seeing human, sort of the incorrigibility of humanity and systems and of oppression and things. And you have the right, no, Americans are all good people. Like you, you have this strange flip-flop of anthropologies. Or even, of course, of this bizarre idea of Trump and the right embracing Putin and the Russians. And that, you know, obviously, does the person, you know, in Dayton, Ohio, who's a Trump supporter, does he truly care that Trump is in financial bed with Putin and the oligarchs? Not really. But it feels fun to go to a rally and say, you know, it's good to get along with the Russians. And then suddenly, as we're saying, the left becomes this rather old school. The Russians are bad. The Russians are coming. And, you know, it's not to say this is going to last forever. I mean, at what point, you know, in a way it comes a little bit back to my, from 2010, this book called Reality Hunger. I think of this book as being, of the Trump book, in a way, being a bit of a build off of that book. You know, can reality still penetrate the society of the spectacle, the frenzy of the visible, which is American culture, you know, a culture in which, you know, Jesse Ventura was the, the governor of, of Minnesota or Kim Kardashian has 50 million uh, Instagram followers. I mean, let, you know, the old question, which is a real question to me, you know, the Mueller investigation, let's say that ever lands, can it penetrate American artifice of 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 simulation i think it's an open question i and in a way the book is about that you know will the trumpian you know it's very easy to just say it's a trumpian nightmare it's a trumpian fascism it's a trumpian tyranny and you know i share people's concerns with all these things but how is it actually working what what are the psychological mechanisms of trump that create him to be as nasty a piece of work as he is and then why does it it resonate with a huge swath of people? I mean, that's what the book is about, rather than that easy, lefty, harumpian, Trumpian bad, me good. Like, no, I'm fucked up. Trump's fucked up. We're all fucked up. The reason Trump works is that he owns our fucked up, our own fucked upness, and that's that's a pretty charming. I mean, that's that's a mod. That's you know, that's a. He's a Dostoevsky and anti-hero. I mean, that's a that's a cool posture. That's every modernist hero. You know, that's every hero of every contemporary novel and every contemporary film that he is our fucked upness, but he's rendered human and vulnerable. That's Trump. Yeah, this is why every serial drama that's interesting now, right, from The Sopranos on, they're not morality tales. They're sort of authenticity tales. Like it doesn't, the protagonists are always people that are finding themselves, right? I mean, somebody said, I forget who said after Barbara Bush died that George Bush and Barbara Bush, they were in that last, they were born adults, right? Like, you know, 18, whatever they're, and they're saying that every other president, like, look, you look at, you know, uh, Clinton, Obama, George W. Bush, they're all finding themselves later in life, and on a, you know, and that, and this sort of, sort of Trump, you have this great section where you're like, his need for the media is this need for a mother who was frail and he was, he didn't have a tight connection to her and he had this business-like relationship with his father. And all of that is like, you know, you're saying that, that basically you have, you have this, you know, this Trump looking for himself, looking for love through, through women, through aggrandizement, especially through the media. You saw that in that 80 minute press conference thinking they, he was finally getting, winning them over. And that, that's his, and, and because we're all like looking for approval, like how many, how many likes did my tweet get? How many people are, you know, uh, think, you know, are, are following me on social media? How many people think I'm the decent suburban, you know, or urban citizen or whatever? And, and, and that we whether or not we'd like to admit it, we were there in him. That's lovely. I mean, that that's a wonderful insight. I wonder if you recall who said that, if that was a podcast or whatever. That's a lovely idea that Bush, uh, you know, Bush 41 was the last adult president. Clinton is obviously a perpetual child. Then, um, then W obviously lost, and then Obama super Oprah narrative, and then Trump hugely big baby 
baby man president. And you could see, of course, Hillary is sort of adult. That was what's so boring about her. She's so adult that she tolerated her philandering husband because she's the adult. And like, like, who wants adults that we want big lost children that we're America? This is Oprah land. This is, uh, you know, Kardashian country. This is, you know, um, therapy land. You know, um, I forget some of those other psychologists that rule the airwaves, you know, that, um, you know, people did, you know, that were, you know, we're a young country, blah, blah, blah. Trump is, you know, he's a big broken guy. And and also he promised drama like he pretended if if Hillary got elected that we would have a series of investigations. But what Trump promised and he's delivered is, uh, you know, it's it's entertaining. It's obviously it's the greatest reality TV show ever produced. You know, that's the other big thing he learned from Apprentice TV uh, from uh, The Apprentice was you have to incrementally uh turn stuff up every day. And, you know, some of it is out of Trump's control now. But, you know, in a way, he has produced amazing ratings. I mean, CNN couldn't be happier. MSNBC couldn't be happier. NPR, PBS, The New York Times. I mean, they're all just eating at the Trumpian trough, you know, quite happily, as am I. You know, this book, you know, I guess maybe it's of white middle class male privilege that, like, I I had a riot writing this book. I mean, I was just I I don't can't I can't remember having more fun writing a book than writing this book about Trump. I just I just wired myself into mass media. I did a massive amount of research and I just tried to force myself to say something about Trump that wasn't everyone else's easy morality tale. This is more what would you say it's more of a psychocultural tale like who is Trump? Who am I? Who are we? You know. Yeah, it's descriptive, not prescriptive. I mean, which is yeah, I which think is good, yeah, good art is like that, right? It's and is it thing like, thing is it, is it sort of like the Super Size Me documentary, like where the guy just like eats McDonald's every day for a month and is is sedentary? It's like, hey, I'm going on the Super Size Trump diet. I'm going to ingest all of this stuff and see what comes. Ingest out. Trump. <laughs> that's that's a brutal metaphor. I'm afraid you're right. I mean. I, I wasn't a huge fan of that documentary. I thought it was okay. It was a brilliant idea, a brilliant experiment. And in a way, you could see my book a bit of an experiment. That what happens if I if I supersize me and I try to enter a Trumpian landscape? I, I think there's a bit of an element too that you that uh you know that you know it's a bit of a a one trick pony. Like okay, let, and I think the book is also trying like supersize me to say you know, like what shit comes out if I, you know, the book that tries to be a little Trumpian too, in the sense that I do a lot of drive-by shootings of various people. The book tries to, in a way, have Trumpian attitude, like it's full of put downs of writers whose work I don't admire, or, you know, I do a put down of Brian Williams. I, I, love, or, the, I love the Brian Williams put down. I, but see, this is the thing, right? The desire, right? This is the psychoanalytic desire. Like you're getting the guilty pleasure from doing and I'm getting exactly. the guilty pleasure from reading it. Like, Thank you. Thank, no, that, I mean, I'm dying to listen to this podcast now, but because I think that's a really beautiful, like, how does it feel, dear reader, to watch me say these rather these rather nasty things about everyone from you know Brooke Gladstone to Brian Williams to Hillary Clinton to to myself exactly I'm trying to animate and embody um the guilty pleasure of nasty attitude toward our own finitude and morality so that's that's I yeah I mean I became aware pretty early on that the book has a little bit of a Trumpian uh you know it's like I'm on Howard Stern and trying to say uh the most shocking thing so Howard will think I'm funny. You say that in the book that we the American politics you know we have this dialectic that's relentlessly schizophrenic right or and maybe dialectic is like that like at least in the pop hegelian sense you know you get you go nixon the imperial presidency to carter carter this sort of sunny school 
you know, understated guy gets this Reagan, the star, and Clinton to Bush, Bush to Obama, Obama to Trump, Trump to the Weinstein, me too. So, like, basically, I mean, the the desire stuff makes me think. I said to my wife, I love Michael Avenatti. And I can't believe I said that, but, like, it was... Oh, I was saying that. I was saying that last night to my wife. I said, I have a man crush on Avenatti. Me too. Me too. I said this... I love that guy. I mean, what's not... I mean... Why is that even a guilty pleasure? I think he's fantastic. But like, just because he's, it's not because he's a bit of an ambulance chaser or something. Or but it's sort of like that. He's better. He's sort of better at the Trump discourse than Trump in some sense, right? So like, like that's the. But the dialectical thing, if it's like a healthy dialectic, right, would lead us to somebody that's like an adult again, right? That we would go. I see what you mean. But like the 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 desire is like hey let's get avenatti in there debating trump you know what i mean it's one of those it, totally. it's like get it on steroids totally he's amazing like he's i mean he is you know incipiently running for president and i think what he understands better than almost anyone on the left is that he understands i mean it's just a cardinal rule of debating and trump really understands it and learned it hugely Roy Cohn, and somewhat from Howard Stern, and somewhat from Mark Burnett, as it Barnett, I guess it is. Um, always be on the aggressive. Never, ever, ever be defending yourself. Never apologize. And if somebody, you know, calls you X, don't ever deal with the accusation. Call him Y squared. You know, it's something never answer. And Avenatti was kind of brilliant last night on. Uh, he was on a couple MSNBC shows, you know, and they said, you know, Trump called you a third rate lawyer. And instead of saying, you know, he just had a couple of brilliant answers. I, I love he what goes, he said. I'm living. I love living rent free in your head, Mr. President. That's an amazing line. I mean, he is so or what was that? He said he goes, he goes. Well, he goes, imagine, he goes, think of everything I've accomplished just in the last six months. Can you imagine how much trouble Trump would be in if I were a, a first rate lawyer? You know, and he's just very good at being funny. He's very good at being smart. And he's, in a way, very good at being, I would say, I mean, this might be an old fashioned term, but he's very good at being male. I mean, he's very masculine. Like, he's very, he's full of testosterone. I mean, he's this little peacock guy. Like he's full of, uh, you know, Trumpian, Trumpian um, Y chromosome. But it, you know, he's he fights fire with proverbial fire. I mean, you compare him to someone like, my God, Charles Schumer or somebody. It's like you can't be serious. I mean, he is the worst. And um, Avenatti's great. Great. You know, he's great. And I don't even have any guilt. I mean, I don't even get why. I mean, everything he says is true. And yes, he's a bit of an ambulance chaser, but that's the culture that, that I mean, you know, he's what? Well, he's a bit of an attention seeker. I mean, uh, as are we all, you know? Yeah, that's the thing. This is what's interesting about it to me is that like the the he is a product of this thing that made Trump. I mean, he's he's kind of right. And he might be the political i don't know that he's the antidote to the things that created trump there but he is an ideal adversary to trump you know like oh my god and he's man can you imagine i mean i mean just think of the debate if you know i mean i don't think avenatti will will make it alas through the primaries although i don't know it just because i don't think the democrats want to nominate you know a straight white male who's a, uh, you know almost uh a billionaire attorney, you know, but, you know, I think it'll be, you know, maybe Elizabeth Warren, Kamala Harris, somebody like that, possibly Cory Booker. But, you know, but I just think that the left Democrats maybe want uh, <clears throat> somebody who's a woman and or a person of color. I don't know. I, it just feels what the energy of the culture is, maybe. But I did him and um yeah, he's the best. I mean, we could we could do a whole show on Avenatti. I mean, it's so obvious that the only way to fight Trump is with I mean, in a way, I mean, you know, it's not unrelated to my book in a sense that I think of my book as being in a way the literary equivalent of Avenatti and that the book tries to be full of snark, it tends to be full of rage. It tends to be, I hope it's funny. You know, it, it owns my own complicity, you know, and, um, you know, I feel like Avenatti was a bit of a model, 
for me instead of me like you know being like say timothy snyder who i think is good or being like uh you know who else on the left is writing well about trump you know doing like a moral finger wagging you know i'm trying to match trumpian uh you know virtuosity with my own sort of comic or tragic comic or furious virtuosity so i avenatti is a weird avatar for my book it's interesting the guys i was mentioning why theory one of them wrote a book he's been on the podcast actually todd mcgowan he wrote a book called only a joke can save us a theory of comedy and his theory wow i can't wait to read that uh, i'm obsessed with that idea it's fantastic and his theory is very Whoa. Kind of psychoanalytic he says it's lack and excess it's the strange combination of lack and excess in an unexpected way right and so like you know and he thinks you know we're born we pulled away from our source figure and everything and so we have this lack and then society says if you play by the rules if you fit in we'll we'll sort of you know fill in the lack and then you go and have excess to blow off steam because the lack is still there and he says this lack and excess it creates this con an unexpected combination you know you, you that's what creates humor and i mean and part of that is because we're all products of lack and excess and trump is 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 so so much that lack and excess figure right and so that's beautiful but i think the virtue, oh, that's amazing the virtue of your book right is actually i, I don't think that the the jeremiah's get you attuned to anything self-reflective which is where really ch existential things happen right they just allow exactly. you to hide from yourself and to join the crowd whereas you're not inviting people exactly to, to use trump to see who they are in the moment no that i mean i can't i can't wait to read that guy's book it, if i'm following your and his argument correctly it's that it begins with some lack in oneself, which, if I'm following, takes the form of excess as symbolic revenge on that. I mean, my God, that's a perfect description, I would say, of me and most of humanity. And then I would say it's an unbelievably precise diagnosis of Trump. And, you know, and then I would the key move, I think, is to make is to how that resonates with a huge number of people. I would say not only people on the right, people who are at rallies who have, you know, maybe literally abysmal lives for whom Trump's excess is just unbelievable tonic, but also people on the left who refuse to deal with their own uh, existential lack and who hide from their Trumpian qualities with, and they try and paper it over with a kind of moral Jeremiah, as you say. So those are very useful terms. In a way, the first third of my book is about Trumpian lack, and then the last third is about Trumpian excess. And so that's, that's boy, that we're talking about, I mean, who is this guy, Todd McGowd? Is he a professor of literary theory somewhere or yeah he teaches film study and tell film studies i think at the university of vermont but and he's got a philosophy uh -huh. background and just uh, a delightful guy i mean he's uh and well you're you're pretty cool and so is your book david i i loved reading it and everybody should read nobody hates trump more than trump in my opinion and i appreciate you spending some time talking to me about it thanks so much scott i thoroughly enjoyed it i learned quite a bit i really i'll become a a listener of ah, your podcast oh that's incredibly kind thank you the pleasure was all mine thanks again scott thanks for listening to give and take if you liked what you heard please do a couple things for me they are so helpful if you do them share this interview on social media or via email or tag someone in a tweet or something and say hey this is great check it out spread the love and goodness if you've found it here also if you could go please 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 it takes like 60 seconds go to itunes and write a review and give it give a rating to the podcast it really really helps especially as things are getting off the ground and if you want to consider becoming a patreon sponsor you can just go right to the link on the podcast page giveandtake.fireside.fm you can find all the information there Thanks to David for coming on the podcast. Do check out his book, Nobody Hates Trump More Than Trump, an Intervention. It's a great read. You won't regret it. And thanks again to you for listening to Give and Take. Until next time, friends, fare thee well.